This morning we return once again to our verse-by-verse study of Luke's historical account of the early church. So turn to the book of Acts with me this morning to Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14. And because it is an historical narrative, it's a little bit easier to go through large portions of the text at one time. And so we will attempt this morning to do the whole chapter kind of as a unit. So let me read this to you and then make some comments accordingly. Acts chapter 14. And it came about that in Iconium they entered the synagogue of the Jews together and spoke in such a manner that a great multitude believed both of Jews and of Greeks. But the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. Therefore, they spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. But the multitude of the city was divided and some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat and to stone them, they became aware of it and fled to the cities of Lyconia, Lystra, and Derbe and the surrounding region. And there they continued to preach the gospel. And at Lystra there was sitting a certain man without strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb who had never walked. This man was listening to Paul as he spoke, who, when he had fixed his gaze upon him and had seen that he had faith to be made well, said with a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he leaped up and began to walk. And when the multitude saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice, saying in the Laconian language, the gods have become like men and have come down to us. And they began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their robes and rushed out into the crowd, crying out and saying, men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you and preach the gospel to you in order that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. And in the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways. And yet he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons satisfying your hearts with food and gladness and even saying these things, they with difficulty restrained the crowds from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and having won over the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. But while the disciples stood around him, he arose and entered the city. And the next day he went away with Barnabas to Derby. And after they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, 
Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Attilia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, from which they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had accomplished. And when they had arrived and gathered the church together, they began to report all things that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they spent a long time with the disciples. Here we have a historical account of the final days of Paul's missionary journey, the first missionary journey, and what a marvelous account it is, especially for those of us who are Gentiles, because here we see the gospel being spread to our ancestors and how thankful we should be. Later on, Paul would say in Romans 11 that some of the branches were broken off and we as Gentiles, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree. And of course, even though we rejoice in this, we are also told not to be arrogant because we are the ones that have been grafted into this olive tree. In fact, Paul said in verse 18 of Romans 11, do not be arrogant toward the branches. In other words, towards the Jews that have been broken off temporarily. He says, but if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. So he goes on to tell us that we need to be kind to the Jews that continue in their unbelief. They are God's beloved enemy. They are his elect. And someday they as a nation, as the natural branch, will recognize their Messiah. And they will once again be grafted into the olive tree of covenant blessing. For it was theirs from the very beginning, as Romans 11 goes on to say. But as we look at this account and as we think back over all that we have studied thus far in Paul's first missionary journey here with Barnabas, one of the things that we are forced to recognize is that ministry is war. It is a battle. In fact, just entering into the kingdom requires us to battle our own pride, our love for sin. That's why Jesus said in Luke 14, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. And the Lord also said in Matthew 11:12, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violent men take it by force. And Jesus said also in Matthew 10:34, do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. This is a far cry from the easy believism, the cheap grace the simple type of gospel that you hear so often where you just kind of fall in love with Jesus, whisper a little prayer and welcome to the family of God. But most people never see the war that is really going on. In fact, many Christians don't see that because unfortunately, many Christians are not engaged in the battle. But for those who are, they will recognize very quickly that it is a war, it is a battle. And frankly, as soon as the cannons of 
gospel truth begin to pound the fortresses of satanic deception. At that point, the hordes of hell return fire with a vengeance. And it is a constant battle. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul would later write, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. In other words, though we have human limitations, we do not war according to the flesh. And that presupposes, obviously, a great conflict. And he went on to say, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Of course, the divine weaponry that we have is the word and prayer. And those fortresses that he describes is literally referring to strongholds of satanic deception. He went on to say we are destroying speculations. In other words, false ideologies, false philosophies, ideologies that are concocted under the influence of demons, as we read in other passages of Scripture. So he says we are destroying all these speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. Now, may I remind you, dear friends, that there is a great conspiracy that has gone on since the beginning of time. There are two opposing kingdoms. There is a satanic kingdom where Satan and his minions does everything that he can and they can to thwart the purposes of God. And likewise, there is the kingdom of God. Satan and his demonic host are ever vigilant to thwart God's purposes. The Bible says he is the God of this world. He is the one that in which the whole world lies under his influence. And he uses two primary weapons. He uses, number one, temptation, where he, where he orchestrates this world system to violate the law of God through every imaginable form of temptation that appeals to the lusts of men. And then secondly, he uses deception. He uses counterfeit. He uses false religions. He is the father of lies. He disguises himself as an angel of light. And if you want to see the primary place where Satan applies his trade, you need to look no further but in a pulpit. Because that is where he does his greatest damage. And as we see this in this text, all of this unfold of how Satan is at work, we also must recognize that unbelievers absolutely hate the truth. And again, it's easy for us to forget this sometimes as we live in our little evangelical bubble, as we live in our little Calvary Bible Church family. But as soon as you get outside the bubble and you begin to interact with people, you begin to see how much they hate the truth. They hate their truth about sin. No one wants to be told that everything about them is offensive to a holy God. No one wants to hear what the Bible says, that in essence all that we are, all that we do is offensive to Him, and that there is nothing about us that conforms to the moral character and the desires of God. People don't want to hear that. Likewise, they don't want to hear the truth about the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. They don't want to hear that He is the only way. They don't want to hear that any other way is a false way. They don't want to hear that all religions apart from genuine biblical Christianity are false. They do not want to hear that all religions apart from Christianity are demonic. They do not want to hear that all other gods have been satanically 
inspired. They are deceptions. They are figments of the imagination. So non-believers hate the gospel. They hate Christ and they hate Christians. Let me give you a couple of examples. Think of the violent hatred that you see today about the very notion that God is creator. Think of the massive effort that you see today in our culture to prevent even the free exchange of ideas about intelligent design versus random chance and Darwinism. There's a movie that will be coming out that I'm fascinated to see. It's called Expelled. It's a movie that is produced by Ben Stein. You've probably heard of him. I don't believe he is a believer, but I believe he is a Jew. And this movie is designed to expose and renounce the suppression of the creation intelligent design theory in academia. And as I witnessed some of the trailer of this movie, I was again reminded of the staggering persecution that scientists who dare question the prevailing doctrine of of science, that we are nothing more than sophisticated germs that that crawled out of some primordial swamp and and randomly evolved into our current life formed over millions of years. Anybody, even if they're non-believers, that thinks that there might be another explanation is ostracized. People hate the truth. Even religious people hate the truth about sin, about hypocrisy, about sound doctrine. People prefer instead the bizarre fabrications of religious entrepreneurs. You see them on television all the time. They prefer instead the prosperity peddlers, the faith healers that deceive the masses with their quasi-evangelical shamanism. And as we have recently seen in the news coverage of the presidential candidates, many people hate the truth and they prefer instead the teachings of liberation theology. Liberation theology, by the way, gained popularity in South America in the 1950s. It is nothing more than warmed over Marxism. It is socialism at its very worst. It has very strong Roman Catholic roots. Liberation theology preaches a social gospel of revolution that you can have economic and political salvation for the poor, for the disenfranchised. It has nothing at all to do with the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus is nothing more than a mascot for their political agenda. Liberation theology is all about the Marxist doctrine of the redistribution of wealth. And again, it is socialism at its very worst. It calls for the poor to join in a revolution against what they would perceive to be the wealthy. And, dear friends, this is where America is headed at breakneck speed. It's hard to imagine as well how people can hate the truth so much but still be deceived and go to a church like the one that we've seen in the news called Trinity United Church of Christ. And yet a church with that type of a title would spew out such poison. A place where an Islamic jihadist by the name of Masa Abu Marzouk of Hamas, a terrorist organization dedicated to the genocide of God's chosen and covenant people, Israel, would be allowed to have an opinion piece printed in their church bulletin. Can you imagine that? 
Many cry, well, this is anti-American. Well, indeed it is, but I'm not so much concerned about that. Much of what happens today is anti-American. What I'm concerned about is that this stuff is anti-Christ. And people today don't want to hear this because people hate the truth, because ministry is war, because the truth is something that people hate. Well, the examples are myriad, and the point is we cannot fight this war on our own. If we try to use our own human ingenuity, our own strategies, our own techniques, you might as well try to sink a battleship with a pea shooter. It's simply not going to happen. We are no match for the strongholds of the kingdom of darkness. We need supernatural weapons, divine power. We must be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Paul said in Ephesians 6.10, we've got to put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the powers and the forces of darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Now, dear friends, in our text this morning, we see firsthand the power of God unleashed in this great battle for the truth. And therefore, I've entitled my discourse to you, Combat Essentials. Certainly no great commander would send his troops into battle unprepared, unarmed, ill-equipped. And certainly the Lord of hosts would not do this, nor has he done this. But I would also add that unless a soldier avails himself to all that has been supplied to him and also obeys the commands of the commander, he will suffer defeat. And this morning I would draw your attention to four combat essentials that emerge from this narrative. Number one, we must preach the gospel alone with boldness. Notice in verse one, and it came about that in Iconium they entered the synagogue of the Jews together and spoke in such a manner that a great multitude believed both of Jews and of Greeks. It's fascinating as we look at all that happened in the nascent days of the church, we see that wherever they went, wherever the apostles went, and before that, wherever the Lord went, the message was always the same. It was Christ and Him crucified. As we have seen in earlier scenarios, as well as we will see in later ones, regardless of the audience, regardless of the culture, regardless of the circumstances of that culture, Notwithstanding the superstition of the people, the religion of the people, the idolatry, the felt needs, whether they were peasants or presidents or whether they were educated or ignorant, the message was always the same. And likewise, the method Paul preached the gospel and he knew that we should not be ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it is the power of God unto salvation. He did not try to seduce them with promises God never made about health and wealth. He did not try to trick them with promises of personal miracles. He did not try to appeal to them with politics or preach some social gospel. He simply preached the truth about sin and forgiveness and grace and repentant faith in Christ Jesus. And notice what happened in this great battle. A great multitude believed. Oh, but I hear the skeptics so often. Ah, yes, but the gospel message is old fashioned. 
It is unsophisticated. It is offensive. It is unable to transcend culture. It is unable to address the unique situations of the people of the world. It is unable to penetrate the intellectual mind. And it certainly does not appeal to those of another faith. Well, dear friends, that's not what we see. Historically, and certainly that is not the testimony of Scripture. Charles Spurgeon spoke to this, and I quote, In vain do those who seek after human learning and who aim at dreamy sentiment or spurious science in preference to the standard teaching which is from above attempt to find a nobler instrument. This is the great battering ram which shall yet shake the bastions of error. This is the sword, the true Excalibur, which, if any man knoweth how to wield it, shall cut through joints and marrow and make him more than a conqueror. He went on to say, He who getteth a hold of the gospel of Christ and knoweth how to use it, hath that before which the devils tremble, and in the presence of which angels adore, which cherubs long to look into, and which God himself smiles upon as his noblest work. The truth we proclaim is not what, what has, we have discovered, but that which has been delivered to us, end quote. Indeed, dear friends, we would all do well to follow the example of Christ and the apostles and depend solely upon the power of the gospel to topple the strongholds of deception and quicken the hearts of spiritual cadavers. So that's the first combat essential we need to preach the gospel alone and to do so with boldness. Secondly, we need to understand the strategies of the enemy. And there, these are really twofold as we look at Scripture, at least in a, general, in a general way. First of all, we need to understand the power of the flesh. You know that. Unbelievers, we are taught, are slaves to their lust. They need a transformation of the inner man. And if that does not occur... They have no ability to restrain the flesh. They have no ability to understand the word of God. And so this requires a mighty work of grace. And even after we are saved, even after we have been transformed, we still battle with indwelling sin. But secondly, the second strategy of the enemy, I should say the second enemy besides the flesh, is Satan. And we must understand the supernatural power of Satan. And this is where I want to focus primarily for a few minutes this morning. There are several key principles we've got to keep in mind, and we see them even in this text. We see, first of all, that Satan will engage anyone who assaults his kingdom. Whether it is in our family, our church, our community, wherever it is, wherever God is at work, demonic forces will be deployed. Wherever the gospel seed is sown, we know that the devil comes to snatch it away. As the Lord said in Luke 8, 12, he said, every, he said uh, that he comes to snatch away every seed from their heart so that they may not believe and be saved. But another principle that we've got to keep in mind here is that Satan uses false doctrine and phony religionists as his greatest weapons. Notice in verse 2. It says, but the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren, literally poisoned them against the brethren. 
And we see the same dynamic in verse four. We see where the city now is divided in their loyalty. Some are with the Jews, some are with Paul and Barnabas. In verse five, we see how that they enlist both the Jewish and Gentile political leadership to mistreat and stone them. And then later on in verse 19, we see that the Jews from Antioch and Iconium win over the multitudes and they come along and they stone Paul. They drag him out of the city and leave him for dead. And the point here, dear friends, is beware in the great battle for the truth. Beware of phony religionists. Beware of false teachers. Beware of false religions. Don't be so naive as to think that our Christian bookstores are not filled with this type of stuff. This stuff fills the airwaves. It's on television. It's often on the radio. And as Christians, we must always be aware that our most formidable foes will typically be religious people with a counterfeit faith. And typically, we know that they work hand in hand with political powers. We have seen this historically with Roman Catholicism. We have seen Roman Catholicism work with political power. We witness this today with the religious extremism and Marxism, as I mentioned a few moments ago, of liberation theology. Sadly, and I grieve over this, even in the Presbyterian Church USA, we see it now with their 216th General Assembly resolutions where they make their stand against Israel. They have a rabid anti-Semitic and pro-Palestinian stand that has grown out of their Roman Catholic eschatology, their supersessionism, their replacement theology. We see false religions coming alongside politics in the Arab Muslim strategy for the Islamization of Christianity. That's their plan. That's their goal. They've already been quite successful in Europe, and that is their plan as well here in America. And this is actively supported, unfortunately, again, by the Presbyterian Church USA and other liberal and even apostate Christian denominations. So, knowing the enemy with these kinds of strategies, how false religionists will come along and they will find those in power and political power to somehow thwart the purposes of God under Satan's supervision. What do we do? You go out and you, you march with signs to get your candidate in office? No. You preach the word. You keep preaching the word. You preach the whole counsel of God. You rightly divide the word of truth. You contend earnestly for the faith. That's what Paul and Barnabas did. Regardless of their audience, they knew the power of the word as well as the tactics of the enemy. So we don't change the message, nor do we change the method. And a third combat essential here is that we need to train and strengthen and encourage new recruits. This is the whole idea of exhortation and discipleship. Notice in verse 3, and I know you're thinking we'll never get through all of these verses, but we will. Verse 3, therefore they spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. And even later, after Paul had been stoned and taken out of the city and, and left for dead, notice in verse 20, 
It says that he and Barnabas now, they leave the next day and walk 40 miles to Derby. Now think about that for a second, folks. How would you like it if you had just been stoned to a point where you were unconscious? People think you're dead. And then the next day you walk 40 miles to preach the gospel again. By the way, as a footnote, there was a man by the name of Onesiphorus, a resident of Iconium, and we have record of his testimony of what he saw when he looked at Paul. So if you want to know what Paul looks like, here's what he said, and I quote, He was small in size, with meeting eyebrows, with a rather large nose, bald-headed, bow-legged, strongly built, full of grace, for at times he looked like a man, and at times he had the face of an angel, end quote. But my point here is this combat essential of training and strengthening and encouraging new recruits. Paul understood this. Even after he was stoned, they walked 40 miles to Derby, And what did they do? Verse 21. And after they had preached the gospel to that city and had made disciples, many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch and to Antioch. You have to stop here. You think you have got to be kidding me. Why would you do this? You're crazy. You're going to go back and get stoned again. Well, obviously, there was something very important that drew them back into the camp of the enemy. And it says here in verse 22 that they went strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Beloved, they were committed to that combat essential of training and strengthening and encouraging new recruits. Beloved, this is why we have such an emphasis on in-depth Bible teaching here at Calvary Bible Church. Whether it's in Sunday school, whether it's in children's church, SIT for the men, the, the Sunday services in the mornings at night, uh, uh, Wednesday nights, whatever it might be. We're constantly trying to equip the saints for the work of ministry to grow you in the grace and the knowledge of Christ so that we can be effective in this great battle for the truth. If you talk to people and we've got several of you in here that are a part of the military when they are not at war, what are they doing? They're training, constantly training, preparing themselves for every possible contingency. And the same must be true in the battle that we wage. We must never stop training. We must never stop learning. We must never stop exercising our faith. We need to teach our children over and over and over and over the truth. This is what Paul and Barnabas did. Now, notice the flow of what happened, and we're going to gain more insight here into the importance of training believers. They first now preach in Iconium, and a multitude of Jews and Gentiles believe, but the unbelieving Jews now poison the minds of the Gentiles. They embitter them against Paul and Barnabas, and so they spend a long time, verse 3, speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord. So they're now they're teaching them the great doctrines of the Word of God, and then we see that they perform signs and wonders. God uses this to validate both the message and the messenger. And then they attempt to stone them, but first they flee to some surrounding rural cities. And what do they do? They continue to preach. 
They go to Lyconia, to Lystra and Derby. By the way, Lystra was the home of Timothy and his mother Eunice and his grandmother Lois. And we don't know for sure, but there's a high probability that Timothy first encountered Paul in this particular scenario and later on became a believer and a great warrior of the truth himself. But notice in verse 8, at Lystra, there was a certain man without strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb, who had never walked. This man was listening to Paul as he spoke, who, when he had fixed his gaze upon him, had seen that he had faith to be made well, said with a loud voice, stand upright on your feet, and he leaped up and began to walk. Now, let me digress for a moment. This is a fascinating scene. Again, we see a lame man and we see that he was listening to Paul. That's always an encouraging thing for someone who is speaking to have somebody listening. But notice that it says that Paul fixed his gaze upon him and saw that he had faith to be made well. Now, first of all, again, we see that the lame man's faith was what saved him. God gave him the gift of faith and faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So, again, interesting, regardless of the audience, you preach the gospel, unleash it and watch what the spirit of God will do. But I'm also intrigued, especially as a pastor with Paul's ability to spot this man in the crowd. It had to be a very large crowd. And I know as a pastor, you learn to read faces. I learned to read your faces in whatever group that I'm speaking to. And as I thought about this, I noticed that there's really four types of people that we typically speak to. And I'm certainly they had this in this crowd as well. But by all means, this is true in most churches. First of all, there's the calloused. I know what the calloused face looks like. That's the face of indifference. These are the people that are detached, disinterested, bored, inattentive. Their eyes are usually half closed if they're not fully asleep. Their heads are typically nodding or they're doodling around on a piece of paper or playing some game. Or they're snuggling with their mate twirling their hair or whispering or giggling. These, of course, would be either the unsaved or if they are believers, they're the very immature, the carnal. And then there's the cynical. And these would definitely be the unbelievers. These are the ones that are the contemptuous scoffers. These are the scornful skeptics, the sneering unbelievers with the furrowed eyebrows and the arrogant scowl the piercing eyes, uh, when they look at me, I sense their resentment, their anger, their defensiveness. They want desperately to challenge everything that is being said. They are proud. They are rebellious. And God calls them fools because they have no fear of God or his word. And then there's the contemplative. These are the ones that are attentive. They're eager. They're studious. They're meditative. They are typically taking notes, they're reflective, they're, they're serious-minded. Their heads will nod in agreement, they'll hang on every word. These are the ones that are longing for the sincere milk of the word because they know that only by it can they grow with respect to salvation. These are the mature, the seasoned saints, the ones that are growing. And then there's the fourth one, 
And this is the one that Paul spotted in the crowd. This is the convicted. This is the one that's frankly hard to describe. Now, many times I will see that in this room. They are the ones often that are weeping. These are the ones that have a face of tenderness, a look of humility and resolve. They will have a look of of brokenness as well as joy, of contrition, and of hope. Undoubtedly, this was the look of the crippled man that Paul spotted. And notice what happens. Now, Paul spots him and he heals him. And the result is absolute pandemonium. It is chaos. Verse 11, we read at the end, The gods have become like men and have come down to us, they said. Let me give you some context here. We know that there was a... Roman poet named Ovid that perpetrated this kind of myth and many others. And it became a tradition and it went kind of like this. And this is what the people would have had in their mind when they're witnessing what's going on with Paul and Barnabas now and and the, the raising of this of this lame man. The myth went this way, that once upon a time, the gods Zeus and Hermes came to earth incognito. And Zeus would have been Jupiter, according to the Roman counterpart, and would have been uh, Mercury, according to the Roman counterpart. So you've got Zeus and Hermes who supposedly came to Earth incognito. And guess where they arrived? Well, right here at Lystra. And they were seeking food and lodging, but were denied by everyone in the city. No one wanted anything really to do with them, except for one old peasant man by the name of Philemon and his wife, Bossus who graciously took them in. Well, this absolutely infuriated the gods. They were angered. And so the gods sent a terrible flood. And guess what? It killed everybody except Philemon and Bossus. And they were then transformed. Their little little home was transformed into a magnificent temple. They were made priests and priestesses, or a priest and a priestess, I should say. And even the myth goes on to say that when they died... Their bodies became two regal, magnificent trees. So these pagan idol worshipers have this in their tradition, in their religion. And obviously they thought that Paul and Barnabas were Zeus and Hermes. Hermes would have been the spokeswoman and and Paul would have been the one doing most of the speaking. So in verse 13, we see that even the priest now, he's equally deceived, boy, and 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 he thinks now that that his uh, all that he's teaching and, and all of their religious beliefs are being confirmed and that the gods have come. So he brings sacrifices to worship them. You think, boy, those, those poor, deceived people, dear friends, I would sadly say to you that we see the same type of thing routinely here in our country. It's interesting. You turn on the TV, you see very similar kinds of idolatry, even in the name of Christianity. It's sad for me to watch desperate people who need the truth being deceived. They are ignorant. They are gullible, superstitious, unstable hearts ruled by emotion rather than truth. Then you have false teachers with some phony God that they're peddling. And they these dear people will sacrifice their last dime to somehow buy a personal miracle. And then these men and many times women They call themselves pastors, pander to the senseless, 
fanaticism and naivety of these people that are ruled by emotion. And then they bilk them out of all, everything that they own. It's such a tragic thing. But I want you to notice, Paul and Barnabas would have nothing to do with this blasphemous worship. Notice in, in verse 14. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their robes and rushed out into the crowd, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men at the, at, of the same nature as you and preach the gospel to you in order that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. And in the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways. And yet he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And even saying these things, they were they, they with difficulty restrained the crowds from offering sacrifice to them. And it goes on to say, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. And having won over the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. But while the disciples stood around him, he arose and entered the city. And the next day he went away with Barnabas to Derbe. Well, beloved, you must understand what was going on here. You see, their fanaticism and their worship changed very quickly when they understood that what Paul and Barnabas was saying was not something that affirmed their pagan idolatrous worship, but rather absolutely abolished it. At first they're thinking, oh, great, this is this is our these are our gods here. And the Jews came along and said, oh, no, let us tell you what they're talking about. We don't like them. You shouldn't like them either. Let's get them and let's stone them, get rid of them. Now, I come back to my point with you, my point with respect to the combat essential that we've got to train and strengthen and encourage new, new recruits. In light of all of this, can you imagine how difficult it would have been to be a new believer living in all of this chaos? To cope with all of this. So now do you see how important it is? For Paul and Barnabas in verse 22 to come back and strengthen the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. You see, friends, they are being reminded that there is a high price for following Christ. And yet it is worth it beyond words. And so he comes along to strengthen their souls. Indeed, they needed this because of the disbelieving Jews campaign to poison the minds of the Gentiles, as we see even all the way back in verse two, they also needed to encourage them to continue in the faith. The idea here is to come alongside them because the persecution was fierce and they needed help in enduring all of these things. And again, think of this. Now, these were new believers. These were new recruits, if you will. They were not seasoned combat veterans. But even with seasoned veterans, we must be diligent to prepare them for the battles they face. I want to remind you of something here. Many times we have Christians who have gone to church for years, but they have never matured. They are as immature 20 years after they came to Christ as they were 20 days after they came to Christ. Sadly, many of them have been banished 
to an island of spiritual infancy because they have never been taught the word. And I know there are dozens of you who have shared that very testimony that you have come out of those backgrounds. Most believers today are unprepared. And we see evidence of this in their lack of discernment. My, there are so many examples, the mindless and evangelical infatuation with the whole seeker sensitive movement, the 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 embracing of the profound errors of evangelical pragmatism and the grievous errors of the purpose driven life and these types of things. So, again, this is why we must be committed to the combat essentials that we see in this historical battle in Paul's first missionary journey. What must we do? We've got to preach the gospel alone with boldness. The whole counsel of God. Secondly, we've got to understand the strategies of the enemy. Know how he works with false teachers, false religion, in the context even with the political powers. And we've got to train and strengthen and encourage new recruits as well as immature Christians. Discipling, exhorting them to obedience. That's why Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 2.11, speaking to the church at Thessalonica, we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. Isn't that precious? And dear friends, I hope you hear that. Fathers in particular, hear that analogy. Are you doing this with your children? Encouraging, I should say it begins, exhorting, encouraging and imploring them to walk in the way of truth. Well, the fourth and final combat essential that we that we see emerge from this text is we've got to train and commission our military officers. That is the elders of the church. Notice after the discipleship of verse 22, notice what happens in verse 23. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church Having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Now, again, these were men who would now be given the responsibility of shepherding these flocks. Paul and Barnabas are going to leave. And these are the ones that that God would now empower and gift to give oversight to the church. Dear friends, without faithful Qualified elders, a church can no more function as God intended it to function than a military could function without its commanding officers. There must be organization. There must be oversight. There must be discipline. There must be protection. There must be accountability and leadership and vision and teaching and preaching and on it goes. And many, many other responsibilities that are delineated in the pastoral epistles of first and second Timothy and, and Titus. And even in first and second Thessalonians later on, we can see a list of some of the things that elders and pastors in particular are required to do. And no doubt these were the types of things that Paul and Barnabas told these dear men. They are too, according to first and second Thessalonians, be men that are praying, evangelizing, equipping, defending, loving, laboring, modeling, leading, feeding, watching, warning, teaching, exhorting, encouraging, correcting, confronting, and rescuing. This was what they were called and commissioned to do. This is what every faithful pastor and elder must do. 
And finally, we read that Paul and Barnabas make their way back home. Why, don't you know they were excited to get back home and to see their friends and their family? Verse 26, they go back to Antioch from which they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had accomplished. And when they had arrived and gathered the church together, they began to report all things that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith. To the Gentiles. And they spent a long time with the disciples. My, what a precious homecoming celebration this must have been. What an amazing journey, dear friends. What an adventure. And this is just the first missionary journey. What a joy there is in serving the living Christ. What a joy there is to be able to suffer for His glory. And what a joy it is to experience His power flowing in and through us. And certainly Paul and Barnabas had many stories to tell with respect to those glorious truths. And may I just say in closing this morning, may I challenge you all to stay committed to these combat essentials as we fight the good fight of faith and do battle for the glory of God until He comes or until He takes us home. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for these eternal truths and we pray that you will grip our hearts with every one of them. May we be good soldiers of the cross. May we live lives in such a way as to bring great glory and honor to you. And Lord, may you speak to us and through us that you might be honored in all things. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information, or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit olivetreeresources.org.